Amen. You can have a seat. And would you open to Revelation 20 in your Bibles? We continue through the book of Revelation, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We're getting near the end. If you are a visitor today, you might be lost at certain points in the midst of our teaching because we've been going through Revelation for almost a year now, Uh, but that's all online and you're more than welcome to go and listen in if you need to connect the dots. Have you ever heard the term golden age before? Yeah? The idea comes from the Greeks who formed the ages of human history into stages with the first being the best or the golden age. In their worldview, it was characterized by peace and prosperity, a sense of ease, even in the midst of work. For the Greeks, this was a time of harmony and stability. You'll notice this idea in our own culture as we try to get back to the Golden Age. For the Roman Empire, their so-called Golden Age was a time termed the Pax Romana, or Roman peace. It was occurring at the time of Christ through the early church, roughly 27 BC through about 180 AD. The Caesars, the kings of the Roman Empire, figured out that the expansion of roads for economic trade, a heightened military presence, and a connection between the political, economic, and pagan spiritual arms of society would lead to this great expansion and a form of faux peace. Now, this golden age, or Roman peace, was the period of time in which John, the writer of Revelation, and the first century church found themselves living. And yet for them, as we have seen, it was not a time of Pax Romana, but a time of persecution, economic exclusion, and martyrdom. If we truly put ourselves back into their place, we can empathize with their confusion since their Messiah King was supposed to be reigning and they were supposed to be risen in victory with him and yet the entire material world seemed to be against them. Now this seeming contradiction still rings true in some capacity for many Christians throughout the world today, including those of us in the United States. Our text this morning gives us an understanding of the otherworldly view we are to hold regarding Christ's reign in heaven as he holds what is theologically called his session at the right hand of the Father. It will detail a kind of golden age, most assuredly, but it will be one based not upon the physical prosperity of the material world, but on the ascension to glory of the Savior King. Our focus will move from this material world to the heavenly realm with Christ seated upon the throne. After all, that's the point of Revelation, isn't it? Now this morning, our text will show us an inspired lens into the inaugurated kingdom reign of Christ and his saints. But to begin, we need to first admit that the text before us this morning is one of the most debated of all texts in Scripture. And when it comes to the topic of last things or eschatology, it is the most debated We know this because it is upon this text that four major eschatological views have been developed. And so as I proposed early on in Revelation, we must approach this book with great humility and recognition that it is a difficult book to understand. Can I get an amen? Amen. And so we must have grace for one another in our interpretation. The orthodox belief these views all share is that Christ is coming again. Amen? He's going to resurrect the dead and perform judgment. Amen? 
And he will do this so that he and his people might enter into eternal life together. Amen? They share these. Beyond that, we must agree to work out the details in loving discussion and debate rather than heated division. Amen? Well, let's read our text in Revelation 20, 1 through 6, and we can get our bearings. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is the word of the Lord. Clear as mud, right? (laughs) Makes total sense. Let's go ahead and sing some more songs. Well, it's with a desire for humility as we interpret this text that I'd like to begin this morning by walking through the historical theology of the thousand years in Revelation 20. Now, this is not drawn explicitly from the text, as you will see, but what I want to give you is an idea of the various views that take this text in and build themselves out. And then we're going to look at the text in detail to see which view actually fits the text. Does that sound good? You guys ready for some hard theological work? All right. Well, thank you for bearing with me in some systematic and historical theology before we get directly into the text. As is the case with any of our biblical interpretation, every human being comes to Scripture with presuppositions of how to engage it based on their own feelings, experience, culture, and previous education in Scripture. And so for us to look at the text today unencumbered, I want to first acknowledge the various views on this chapter. For in this chapter, we will hear the phrase, thousand years, six distinct times. In verses 2 through 7. In Greek, this word in verse 2, for example, is kilia. Everybody say kilia. It is from this word that the belief in a literal interpretation of this thousand-year period is called kielism. Everybody say kielism. But most of you have probably never heard that term. Raise your hand if you have heard that term. A couple, all right. Now we know who the theology nerds are with me. Most of you have never heard that term. Instead, you most likely have heard the Latin term for thousand years that comes from Latin milla, thousand, and annus, year, or millennium. How many of you have heard that term? Oh, there we go. And so the belief of a literal thousand-year period of peace and prosperity on earth has been called millennialism. And so all views of this chapter have to do with where and how this millennium will play out in history. So let's look at the various views for a moment so that we can put them aside when we go to the actual text. There are two, count them two, historically orthodox views on how to take chapter 20 and use it to view the timeline of events in Scripture. The first is what is popularly called amillennialism. And all these slides will be on the the website on the teaching uh, after we upload the teaching. So if you need to see them again, you can go there and see them. This is amillennialism. But this is a misnomer because the A at the beginning is meant to designate no millennium. 
Instead, this view is what should be called an inaugurated millennialism. It is the straightforward view that at the cross and resurrection of Christ, Christ began his reign over his kingdom in a fashion that is spiritual and inaugurated and plays itself out in the physical church. This reign will exist during the church age as his gospel is proclaimed and his rule is expanded in the hearts of men throughout the world. Directly prior to his second coming, there will be an intense period of persecution and attack on the church, and he will come again to perform resurrection and judgment, renew the heavens and earth, and we will move into his consummated kingdom of eternity future. This is the teaching position that I hold and have been using throughout Revelation. The second historically orthodox view is what is called historical pre-millennialism. Historical pre-millennialism. This view differs from amillennialism in that it doesn't see Christ's rule during the church age of any real consequence. It teaches that Christ will, be, will return before or pre the millennium, millennium at some point in the future, and then he will initiate a literal, material time of peace and harmony on the earth. The judgment and resurrection at the end of it looks like amillennialism. This was a widely held view in the early church as well. These two views are the only historically orthodox views of chapter 20, meaning they are the only views held by the church for the last 2,000 years. Now, there are two other views which we will not give much credence because they are not historically orthodox, meaning they have arisen relatively recently. The first is what's called post-millennialism. This view teaches the millennium to be a literal, material, millennial age that comes as a result of the spread of the gospel and growth of the church, which will bring about an advancement in society similar to the Greek golden age idea. Then at the end of that, Christ will physically return. Now this was advanced largely by liberal Christianity beginning in the mid-19th century. It was developed in 1850. And then especially into the early 20th century when social advances were increasing and false gospels such as liberation theology and the social justice gospel advanced the idea that we could legislate moral change in society. But unfortunately, the events of the 20th century, World War I, World War II, and so on, greatly reduced its number of adherents because they realized we were not going in a positive direction. Unfortunately, you can see it creep up again in the social justice movements of today. And finally, the view that most, is most prominent in non-denominational evangelicalism today is dispensational premillennialism. This is similar to historic premillennialism, but it has an added focus on a specifically timed seven-year tribulation period directly before a secret rapture of the church out of the world. The specifics of this view were not held by anyone in the church until 1830, when it was proposed by a man named John Nelson Darby. Many of the charismatic movements like Calvary Chapel, the Jesus People Movement, and most recently the Left Behind series of books have made this aberrant view extremely popular. But friends, it is not and never has been orthodox. Now, either of these last two views are not historically orthodox. And so for the purposes of time, we're gonna move them aside. If you are one who holds to them, I'm sorry you heard today, that they're not real. <laughs> in reality, I could be wrong. But if you're one who believes in them, recognize I still love you in Christ, and so does everyone else here. 
If you'd like to hear more of my reasoning as to why I don't see them as orthodox options, feel free to come chat with me after the service, and I'll be less sarcastic. <laughs> Historically, though, the first two, historical premillennialism and amillennialism, have been debated since the very beginnings of the early church. For example, one early church father, Eusebius, who was the bishop of the church in Caesarea Maritima in 314, called another church father, Papias, a man of small intellect for believing in a literal earthly millennial reign. Another theologian that pushed back on a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth prior to the judgment was the great doctor of theology in the early church, Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the late 300s and early 400s. In his early life, he held to a view of a literal earthly millennial reign. He held to historical premillennialism. But he eventually changed to a view that Revelation 20 was instead speaking of the spiritual reign of Christ during the church age, the same view that I hold. His reasoning can be generally summed up into the same reason I changed my own view a few years ago. He saw that the heavy emphasis on the future material peace, harmony, and prosperity of a literal millennium was resulting in Christians who cared little to nothing for the current reign of Christ in their lives. It's as if Christianity was put on hold from the moment of acceptance to the moment of the rapture. Augustine seemed to believe that it was only the amillennial view that held to the true focus of Revelation, which is the current reign of the Lamb in the midst of a persecuting world. And he believed the text pointed to this truth, and I do as well. Now, the primary retort for those who would argue for a premillennial view is that their view is the only one in which God makes good on his promises to Israel to give them peace in their own land. In other words, if God does not make good on that golden age promise to Israel, is he a trustworthy God at all? How can we trust him? To which I would respond that all the New Testament makes clear is that all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. We're not waiting for anything else. In fact, Paul told us this clearly in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In Christ, God has assembled a people and he has reconciled them to the covenant creator God. It was this understanding of the primacy of Christ, the primacy of the gospel, and the importance of standing firm in the current reign and lordship of Christ, even in suffering, that pushed the Protestant reformers, such as John Calvin and Martin Luther, among others, to look back to Augustine and his later view. And so we will see that chapter 20 is yet one more cycle of something we have already seen multiple times in Revelation. It is not a new thing. It is something we've seen already. It is recapitulating, yes, I use that word again, recapitulating the view of the church age from a new vantage point. But here we round the final turn of the corkscrew pattern that we've been looking at throughout Revelation. We round that final turn in chapter 20 through the end point of chapter, or excuse me, through the midpoint of chapter 21. And what we will see here is the vindication of God's saints, the judgment of his enemies, and the establishment of the new heavens and earth as we proceed to the end point of the corkscrew in chapter 22. So let's finally get into our actual text 
and run each of these historic and systematic ideas through the filter of good biblical exegesis and theology. Would you look with me at the first three verses again? Let's read them here together. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. What we see first in this vision is the restriction of Satan's deception of the nations. The restriction of Satan's deception of the nations. The first thing that we encounter right away is the word in the Greek, kai, which means and, or then, or, and then. If we were to read this as a connector between chapter 20 and chapter 19, a connector of two separate and subsequent historical events, we see it coming directly after this great final battle in Revelation 19 that we saw last week. But this is problematic for a number of interpretive reasons. Let's examine just a couple of the items, and then I'll add more next week. Remember first that we have been seeing John use connective words like this throughout Revelation to speak of the movement from one vision to the next in his immediate time, not as chronological connectors of how the visions will roll out sequentially in a far-flung future. The content of the vision is what dictates whether it is subsequent to the previous vision or it is a new cycle of visions. Now, what makes more sense in this text in light of the whole book is that this is a final cycle looking at what we have seen before from a different perspective. It is another recapitulation or retelling of the church age and the judgment to come at its conclusion. Let me show you why I think this makes sense. Look ahead to next week, right there in your Bibles, in Revelation 20, verse 10. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Compare the language of that verse with Revelation 19.20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. These are picturing the same final battle at the end of the church age, just with vision on distinct people that are going through the judgment, distinct characters, I should say. But 20 is not just a recapitulation of 19. This is also a recapitulation of the war that we have seen happening time and time again in Revelation. For example, the war between the two witnesses that symbolize the church in chapter 11 and those that follow the beast amassing, amassing against them. It's also symbolizing the war in chapter 16, where the false community that follows the false Messiah is pictured amassing for a final battle against God and his people. If you don't see them as a conclusive final battle, and even that battle is symbolic, then there are all of these multiple battles in which it seems that Jesus doesn't quite get the job done all throughout Revelation. And this is also a recapitulation of Revelation 17. Would you turn there? 
Just go back a little bit in your Bible. Revelation 17, verse 14. Look at what it says there. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. That's not partially. Conquer is a fullness word. For he is, what is the name there? Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now turn and look back to what we saw last week in Revelation 19.16. The lamb shows up, but this time he's looking a little bit less like a lamb and more like a conquering warrior. And it says in verse 16 of chapter 19, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. And what is his name? King of kings and Lord of lords. The reason that John repeats wording like this is he's trying to show us that he's recapitulating and showing us different views of the same thing. Now also, John is using imagery in both chapter 19 and chapter 20 that are both taking imagery from the final battle pictured in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39. We'll look at this in depth next week. But that battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39, is called the battle of Gog and Magog. Look at chapter 20, verse 8. Chapter 20, verse 8. When Satan is released for a short time, he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Notice the naming there, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. In that Ezekiel-envisioned war... We see that it is called the Battle of Gog and Magog, and we'll see this in depth next week. But there's also pictured in that imagery in Ezekiel a great supper in which the people of God gather together for a great feast. Chapter 18 of Revelation captures that. And that feast is in vindication upon the flesh of the enemies of God, which was pictured in the great supper of God in chapter 19 last week. In other words, John is intending for us to see chapter 20 not as a separate eschatological time period that we're waiting for, but as the same time period we have looked at over and over and over again in Revelation. It is picturing the church age in which we presently dwell. Chapter 20 is picturing the church age in which we presently dwell. Now, the second thing that we notice is that chapter 20 cannot be something that's occurring on earth because John is looking heavenward, heavenward in his vision. And this is another clue that we are dealing with a heavenly or spiritual reality rather than a physical material reality. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 20, the angel is coming down from where? Heaven. He's casting his eyes heavenward. Now, right here, we can ask ourselves, is this meant to be literal or symbolic? We know that Revelation is symbolic, and for that reason, we cannot pick and choose what is symbolic and what is literal. So what do you think? Here's question and answer time. Here we have an angelic hand, a key that locks and unlocks the spiritual realm, a bottomless pit, a great chain, and a dragon. Are these symbolic or literal? They're symbolic. So then what should we do with the fact that it says the time period is a thousand years? Is that literal or symbolic? Symbolic. You don't get to pick and choose. But whenever we have something symbolic, we know that it has a referent or something that it stands for. For example, we are told that this dragon is the devil. 
In other words, the dragon, picture, vision, is standing in for the devil. So then what is the thousand years? Well, as we've seen, the rest of the Bible can help us with this interpretation. Throughout Scripture, the number 1,000 is used as a placeholder for a complete length of time over which God has sovereignty. Now, interesting, in the Greek view, in the Greek idea of a golden age, from which most of our ideas about this come in a wrong fashion, do you know who the god was that reigned over the Greek golden age? Kronos, which means time. When we are so focused on the time, we miss the point of the thousand years, is that God is sovereign over time. He gets to decide when the end is. We don't get to calculate it. Here are two examples from the Old Testament. The first that we heard was in our first reading, Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And then in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3.8, Peter says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Also, we see the number 1,000, often connected to God's character of covenant faithfulness. This is from Deuteronomy 7.9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So I would submit to you, and I could give you dozens more, I would submit to you uh, that the thousand years stands symbolically for a period of time over which God exercises sovereign control and in which he fully accomplishes his covenant purposes for his people as he gathers disciples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Friends, this is a work he accomplishes during the church age. The next thing we notice in this, angelic, in this vision is the angel, the angelic being, is holding keys. Now, this imagery has been given to us before as well, and we need to recall this from elsewhere in Revelation. You can write these down and look them up on your own this week. We see this idea of the keys in three places. In 1.18, it's where Christ is the owner of the keys. He's the one that gets to give them out. In 3.7, it's where Christ has the authority to open and shut the kingdom and with which he protects his people. And in 9.4, the vision of keys is used to show that he has authority over the abuso, the abyss, that we see in our text today. In chapter 9, that abyss is open so that Satan and his demons can inflict natural judgment upon the world in a controlled capacity. The imagery today paints a picture of the abyss as the abode of Satan and the demonic which operates alongside it. This operates alongside and in the midst of the earthly sphere. It is from this spiritual kingdom of darkness that we are rescued by Christ, and it is against this spiritual kingdom that we daily wage spiritual warfare. Think of Paul's comments in his letters in which he reminds the church that we wage warfare not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual deception and oppression. And so here in our text in Revelation 20, these keys are used again, but here they're used to bind up Satan for this God-ordained period of time. And this is what we see next in our passage. 
The angel comes holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, a great, and he has a great chain, and he seizes the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and binds him for a thousand years. Satan is bound up for this God-ordained period of time. Satan is the one bound. But notice the wording. He is called here the dragon, the ancient serpent, which is a reference to the Garden of Eden. He is the devil, which is Greek for slanderer. And he is Satan, which is Hebrew for adversary. Friends, this is the exact same language from Revelation 12. Revelation 12. Let's go back there a little bit in our Bibles. Revelation 12, and look specifically at verse 9. Notice what it says there in verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. Notice that it's the same as chapter 20. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. John is intending for us to recognize that these two things are capturing the same events just with a different view. John is recapitulating the imagery from this passage in our text in Revelation 20. Well, what did we learn in Revelation 12? Let's review and, and think about it again. Revelation 12 is a telescoping vision. It quickly captures the entirety of the re, uh, redemptive history. It captures from the time the people of Israel gave birth to the Christ, the Messiah, all the way through the church age. In Revelation 12, we were shown that it was the birth, death, resurrection, and enthronement of Christ, pictured in verse 5, that then resulted in an angelic battle in verse 7. And this should sound familiar. This is exactly what chapter 20 is saying. And then it shows a demotion of Satan in verse 9. And his ability to deceive the nations is pictured as a deception that flows from his mouth. It shows that it's now limited in its ability to destroy God's people because they are protected, sealed, pictured as people in the wilderness cared for by God for 1,260 days or a time, times, and half a time. This is the same imagery, the same sequence of events that's spelled out in chapter 20. If you feel lost, go back and read the two together and you'll see them. Now you might ask, Hans, how can 1,000 years in chapter 20 be the same time period as 1,260 days or three and a half years in chapter 12? Here's my simple answer. Because they're symbols. You see, in recapitulating these images, John is painting the church age where God's people wait for vindication as being both longer than we would like it to be, a thousand years. On this side of heaven, it feels that way. But once it is all done and we look back from an eternal viewpoint, we will realize how short it actually was. A time, times, and half a time. For a day is as a thousand years in the sight of God and his people. To try and calculate a timetable out of any of these numbers, when Christ specifically told us not to, and that it was not possible, is not only bad biblical interpretation, it's bordering on foolish arrogance that you alone can know the mind of God. Now further, notice that the limitation put on Satan during this period in which the church is divinely protected in the wilderness comes to an end in verse 12. And it says... In verse 12 of chapter 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down, a demotion, to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
just like it says in chapter 20, he will be released for a little while. Also similar, we see in verse 17 in chapter 12, that Satan will go to war with the offspring of God's people. This is the exact same sequence of events within the vision, which matches explicitly with the vision in Revelation 20, which we will cover next week. Friends, they are both speaking of the church age, from Christ's incarnation through now until Christ returns. As we look at the whole book of Revelation, this makes sense. After all, why would it be encouraging for the first century church to whom this whole book was written and all subsequent generations of Christians to receive visions about something that was only going to happen in the far-flung future rather than visions that could be applied in their present life across all time and space in the church age. It's not helpful to think about something 2,000 years down the road. It's helpful to think about how the reign of Christ applies today. Amen? Before we leave our review of chapter 12 and go back to chapter 20, notice with me that the seminal and primary event that initiates this limitation of Satan, this, this demotion of Satan, and the building of God's new covenant people is in verse 5. And what does it summarize? The event of Christ's life through his ascension. Look at verse 5 of chapter 12. She, Israel, God's people, right, gave birth to a male child. Who's that? Christ Jesus, yep, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Question, did he start to rule on the cross, or are we still waiting for that rule to happen in some future millennium? It started on the cross, as we'll see. I'm going to get there. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's Jesus' ascension and his sitting in session. Now, since these two visions are so intertwined, it can be assumed that this same occurrence is the cause for the events we see in Revelation 20. After all, it was the victory of the cross, ultimately, that defeated Satan. Amen? Yes. Tyler showed us this well last week, and we saw this very clearly in Revelation 4 through 6, that the lamb seated upon the throne is the focus of all of the book of Revelation. So let me pause for a moment. Let's our, let our brains catch up for a minute. And ask you, friends, what happened at the cross, resurrection, and ascension of Christ? Was it just a work that would take effect in the future, or was its effect more immediate than that? Was the cross just meant to enable some future land promised for Israel, or was the cross the fulfillment of all the promises of God to his people, for in him all God's promises are yes and amen? It was immediate. You see, one of the difficulties with the premillennial interpretation is that its adherents, of whom I was one for a long time, will look at this small section, go back to Revelation 20, this small section of six verses in Revelation 20, and read into it all the land and political promises given to Israel in the Old Testament. But I want to ask you to honestly read our text this morning and ask, are any of those promises explicitly spelled out in this passage? And the answer is, no, they're not. In reality, there are only two events that are detailed in chapter 20, 1 through 6, and they're the two points of my sermon. The, uh, excuse me, the restriction of Satan's deception of the nations and the inaugurated kingdom reign of Christ and his saints. That's it. And these, dear friends, were the immediate effects 
of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. To understand what our text in Revelation 20 is saying about the binding of Satan, we need to understand that Satan's deception of mankind began all the way back in Genesis 3. Try and go back there in your minds, those of you that know your Bible. There in Genesis 3, Satan deceived Eve into, number one, doubting God's character. Doubting God's character. And number two, doubting that she needed to follow God's command. And from that original fall on, all of mankind has been under this same deceptive darkness in original sin, doubting God's character and doubting that we need to follow God's command. We have become enamored with the physical creation rather than the creator and served ourselves and our idols rather than God. Romans 1 tells us this. In God's mercy and grace, out of this cesspool of deception and darkness... Abraham was called by God out of the darkness to be the beginning of God's people who would do what Adam and Eve failed to do, which was to be God's witnesses and emissaries on the earth. Abraham and his people were to be a light to the nations. In other words, to break the deception and darkness. But they largely failed. And because of this, the Gentile nations continued in darkness until the coming of Christ. They continued in the deception of Satan. But then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus came. And what did this accomplish in the midst of this deceptive spiritual darkness? Well, the Gospel of Luke 2.32 tells us that Christ came as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. In other words, that he would break the deception. In John 12.31-36, we hear this from Christ. Now, this, uh, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, meaning Satan, be cast out or demoted or bound. And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light, in other words, the light that breaks the darkness of deception, is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Deception. The one who walks in the darkness, deception, does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What happened when Christ died? Well, Colossians 2.15 tells us, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. In other words, binding Satan, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And what happened when Christ resurrected? Well, he told us what was going to happen in Mark 3.27. He says the same thing in Matthew. Speaking of Satan, he says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. Friends, how did Jesus plunder the house of Satan of his goods? What were Satan's goods? The Gentiles. On the cross, Jesus plundered the kingdom of darkness. The fact is that by the death and resurrection of Christ, Satan's ability to accuse God as selfish has been destroyed. God's character can never be doubted because of Christ. Satan's ability to accuse the brethren has also been stopped by the cleansing blood of Christ on our behalf. Amen? 
And Satan can no longer inflict the spiritual harm he could before the cross. Satan is not yet destroyed, and so his activity continues. But at the exact same time, his ability to deceive is bound, limited, because of the gospel that proclaims Christ's redemptive work. Amen? Satan's hold on the pagan nations has been broken. In the gospel, the truth of the oracles of God given to Israel have now been made available to all nations, including you and I. Amen? Amen. Friends, without the cross, we would still be in darkness unless you are an ethnic Jew among the Jews. This is the good news that Christ brought us by the cross, not something we're waiting for. This is the work for which Christ ascended into heavens, the heavens and poured out his spirit upon the apostles and the church, converting you and I. And look at what Paul said. The job of the church is, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Friends, we don't have to wait for a material golden age, for the adversary of God to be bound for it has already happened through the gospel we preach every Sunday. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, do you give thanks to God that his gospel, preached to your heart by his spirit, has broken the deception to which you were enslaved? Because of errant theology, I think many of us believe we have chosen Jesus as Lord using our own power and our own logic. I decided for Christ, we say. But friends, it is only the grace of God by his spirit that can break through the deception to which you and I were enslaved to grasp our hearts. Do you understand this amazing grace that Jesus has worked within you? that Jesus alone has done. You have done nothing to earn it. Your logic cannot comprehend or break free of the deception of God, or of Satan, excuse me. I was on a roll there and then I blew it. Do you understand this amazing grace? Is he, God, worthy of your life, of gratitude for this alone? Or are you waiting until he makes good on the promises of physical prosperity and comfort that you think he has promised you before you are grateful. Friends, Christ and the work he has done to draw you to himself is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to you. If you accepted Christ and you're still waiting for him to make good on that golden age promise that you think is in scripture, you misunderstand the power of the cross. Let your worship today and each day be a result of gratitude for his redemption. Amen? Well, let's go back to our core text today, and we'll see the last three verses. Starting in verse 4, it says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. 
At the end of the church age, Satan's influence will be unconstrained for a little while. He will be released, it says at the end of verse 3, for a little while. And we will cover that in detail next week as it is detailed in the remainder of the chapter. But here in verse 4, John's attention goes back heavenward to see the next portion of the vision. Again, this is not something occurring on the earth. We know that the vision shifts heavenward because that is where the angel came from. The thrones also take us back to the throne room scene of Revelation 4 and 5. And even more importantly, this is the fulfillment. This is the fulfillment of the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. And what we see in these verses is the inaugurated kingdom reign of Christ and his saints. The inaugurated kingdom reign of Christ and his saints. This is the fulfillment of so many places in Scripture, but primarily Daniel 7. And we'll turn back there in a moment. If you have already written down your notes, you can turn back to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, we see this amazing imagery in heaven. We've covered this many times already in Revelation. But in Daniel 7, we see, first of all, the Ancient of Days the Father God coming forth, and we see thrones set up. Go ahead and take a look there at Daniel 7, Daniel 7, verse 9. Daniel 7, verse 9. We'll give you a moment to catch up. Daniel 7, verse 9. In this vision of Daniel, it says, As I looked, thrones multiple were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. Where the Son of Man then comes in, Christ, he comes to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and we see this in verse 14. To Christ, to the Son of Man, was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we know what two of the thrones are for, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. But then interestingly, a few verses later, it says this in verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High... And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. This is clarified even further in verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. In other words, we shall reign with Christ. Is this something that we're waiting for in the future? Or has it already been accomplished? Well, all of this informs us that the scene in Revelation 20 is not one that happens on earth literally in a earthly, literal, millennial kingdom, but one that is occurring right now spiritually in heaven because of the cross of Christ. John tells us who is seated on the thrones. Take a look back at Revelation 20. Back in Revelation 20, he tells us who's seated on the thrones. First, he says they are those that are given authority to judge alongside the Lamb. Daniel helps us understand this, as we just saw, but so does Paul. In the midst of the Corinthians, within the local church, dealing with legal matters, including church discipline, Paul notes this in 1 Corinthians 6.2. He says, To the saints currently living in Corinth at the time, 
Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? In other words, he's saying, judge now. Fulfill your position of the thrones now within the church. But then Revelation 20 gives even further detail. John says, these are those that have been beheaded because they are those who we looked at in chapter 13 and 14 that would not accept the mark of the counterfeit savior, the beast. But why are they all beheaded? For not all Christians are martyred. Well, there's a picture here in historical context. Roman law at the time provided two kinds of capital punishment. For non-citizens, those seen as outsiders, they would crucify them. Does that sound familiar? For citizens of the Roman Empire, if they had to execute them, it would be by beheading with a sword. John is picturing the fact that Christ died the brutal death as an outsider so that we might be made citizens of his kingdom. Rome may not recognize Christians as citizens of their earthly kingdom, but Christ recognizes his people as citizens of his own kingdom. And so if this is the saints, those who are seated on the throne, is this saying that all we need to all, that we all need to be martyred to reign with Christ? Again, we have to go back to the same question we asked earlier. What happened at the cross, the resurrection and ascension of Christ? Was its effect far flung into the future? Or did something happen immediately that is still playing out in the church age today? Were we resurrected at that point in a spiritual fashion? Or are we waiting? Well, Jesus said this in our earlier reading today. This is John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears, present tense, my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has, present tense, passed from death to life. In other words, eternity starts today. Our physical death is but a mere speed bump. It's a transition into the glorification that we're waiting for. Paul said this to the Christians in Ephesus in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, past tense, alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This was the effect of the cross. Is this something we're waiting for? The cross accomplished it. And how do we know that this has happened? How do we know that we are seated with Christ, that we are Christians? We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We are part of the church. We love the church. We give our lives to the church. The church isn't just someplace we come to once every four weeks because we feel like we need to check the checkbox. Whoever does not love, in other words, the church, abides in death. You're deceived. Our new life is evident in our obedience to Christ's word and our submission to Christ in the midst of his church. Our love is evident in our care for and submission to one another. And all of this informs our understanding of those who have taken part in the first resurrection. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are, as our text in Revelation 20 says, blessed and holy because of what Christ has already accomplished in you. Dear brothers and sisters, in Christ, we and all who have been converted in their heart to follow Christ as Lord exist as priests of God and Christ 
and we reign with him now and into eternity. And even more amazing, we engage in his rule over his people today. Do you know this? How do we do this? Well, Christ commands us to exercise this same power of the keys by going into all the world preaching the gospel so that we might assist in limiting Satan's deception. By proclaiming this gospel truth of Jesus as the Christ, we hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven against hell and are assured it will never prevail over us. Christ confirmed this earthly reality when he gave the disciples and the church they were beginning the keys of his authority in Matthew 16. He said to Peter and the disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In John, he says the same thing. If you, the church, forgive the sins of any, their sins are forgiven. In other words, we are Christ's body on earth. Not the pope, not a pastor, the entirety of the converted church. And then we use these keys of authority in our work as the church as we affirm those who live in submission to the lordship of Christ, and as we discipline those who claim to know Christ but act in rebellion to his commands, because we see the same language that is used in Matthew 16, a couple of verses later in Matthew 18, where he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And this is in the midst of a section where Christ gave the church the authority to judge and discipline itself in the section popularly known as the section on church discipline. Brothers and sisters, we are ruling today amongst God's people in anticipation and preview of the fullness of the rule we will have in eternity with him. Do you view the work of Christ as something that is for the future only? in a future rapture, a future millennium, and you're searching the headlines to try and find out when that is? Is it something, the cross is just something that gets you to heaven one day? Or is the impact immediate in his current reign as Lord over your life every moment of every day, including in how you interact with his church? Friends, do you realize that Christ is with you as Lord and sees you in every decision, in public and in private, and he is coming to judge whether your life has reflected his lordship? Is your participation in his kingdom happening now as you passionately engage this local church in submission to his people? Or do you think you are your own Lord who gets to determine your own Christianity? And that one day your participation will simply kick in when you get to heaven. Friends, if you don't participate today, you're not going to be in heaven. Hans, that sounds works-based. No, it's the fruit of a life that's converted by the gospel. Do you read his word with thirst to understand his will and commands so that he might exercise his lordship over your life? Because those who have been captured by his spirit will have their affections drawn to live in this way. And if you say, well, Hans, I'm a Christian, but I don't really have a thirst for the Bible. I don't have a thirst for participating in his people. 
Well, friends, you don't have a life that evidences Christ's current lordship. It only evidences your own. And so I would encourage you that if you believe you're a Christian, but you don't have evidence in your life, I would encourage you to cry out in constant prayer to God that he might grasp your heart and change your affections to make the evidence of his conversion known. Now, one might protest and say, Hans, how are we to believe that either of these things, the binding of Satan and the current reign of Christ, are true when we see and feel persecution and martyrdom amidst the church worldwide? How can we believe this when chaos and evil seem to be advancing? Well, friends, that's why it's inaugurated and not yet consummated. And think about this. How much more could the early church have stated this question as they saw their friends martyred in the Colosseums and crucified along the Roman highways? But this is Jesus' point through John to his church throughout Revelation. The people of God during the church age are both the oppressed saints who cry out, How long, O Lord, until we are vindicated, as in Revelation 6, and those who reign as priests with Christ in Revelation 20. As we rightly and clearly see the revelation of Jesus Christ as both a sacrificial victim on our behalf and conquering king over the world, we realize that we are likewise a paradoxical people. We are those who are oppressed by the threat and eventuality of physical death by Satan. And yet we are also those, like Christ, who actually find our victory in death and resurrection. Like Christ, we are both sacrificial victims and victorious conquerors. For sin and death and hell can never overcome us because Christ has overcome them by his death and resurrection on our behalf. We are those that Revelation 12:11 says have conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony for we love not our lives unto death. You see it is impossible to defeat the Christian for the very thing that Satan thinks will bring us defeat death is that which actually raises us to ultimate victory over his kingdom. If you are listening today and you do not follow Christ or you do not submit to his present lordship over your, your life, friends, I lovingly tell you, you will die in the deception of Satan and you will be resurrected, but it will be for the purpose of being present when Christ judge you, judges you in your original sin and rebellion against his lordship over your life. And you will be judged to be worthy of eternal damnation away from his presence in the midst of his wrath. So I beg of you this morning that if that is you, if you have any doubt whatsoever that Christ is complete Lord over your life, I beg of you to turn to Christ in humility and accept his free gift of salvation so that your eyes might be open to his goodness and grace and offer of eternal life in his presence. If you want to talk about what that looks like, please come talk with myself or one of the other pastors after the gathering. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we close, I want to ask you, what is your view of the here and now? And what is your view of death? Is Christ Lord of your life in the here and now? Or is it something you're waiting to kick in passively? And as far as death goes, does Satan hold you enslaved in fear over the topic? 
Are you scared of death? Are you so enmeshed with the material world in front of you that all death holds is fear, even though you know that Christ has saved you from its power? Christians are not those who are flippant with life. In fact, we treasure it and we celebrate it. But we are also those who do not fear sickness and death. For we know that Christ has conquered its fear and hold on us. And so as we enter communion this morning, as Christ's people, let us sit in the fact that Christ has already brought us from death to life. He has already brought us from deception to truth. And he has already brought us from sin to holiness. And let's endeavor in unity with the Holy Spirit to live out the truth this week as we live out the fact that what the cross has already accomplished for us is what we see in our text. The binding of Satan's deception in our lives and in the world and the inaugurated reign of Christ and his people now and forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us for putting off the fruit of the cross in our lives. Forgive us for searching the newspapers, for trying to figure out the timing that you said was impossible to find out. Forgive us for being a people who want to be so in, in control that we think we can calculate the very time that your text today tells us that you alone are sovereign over. Forgive us for being a people that want to be Lord of our own lives and Lord of the timeline, as opposed to simply resting in the trust that you established on the cross and in your resurrection and ascension. Lord, help us to be a people that take the truth of what the church age is, a time where we are sent to the nations to gather disciples and to teach them to obey all your commands. Help us to realize that that's not a if we want to, but that is a command by our king. And so as we Get prepared to take communion. Help us to prepare ourselves to even leave this place, to be a people that are sent to our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, to be able to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, and to show the light that breaks the darkness of deception that Satan has over the world. And Lord, I pray right now today that if there's anyone in here who is still deceived, and maybe even they're so deceived that they think they are yours when in fact they are not, I pray, God, that you would break that deception by the gospel that we've preached here this morning and by the gospel that we actively live out in the living parable of communion. Help us, Lord, to be a people that apply the cross, not sometime in the far-flung future, but here and now and into eternity. We praise you, Lord, for your word and for its truth. In Jesus' name, amen.